Well, let's uh, take our Bibles and uh, turn to the book of Job. Let's turn back to chapter 37. And um, Terry, would you do me a big favor? Would you run? I think I left the clicker in my office on my desk there. Could you grab that for me? Thank you. Uh, the last uh, three weeks, we've been talking about uh, really one of the main themes of the book. Uh, it's the theology of the friends. It's the theology of Elihu, and it's a wrong theology. And and how how we get ourselves into trouble in multiple ways when we um, when we misunderstand theology and then we try to do ministry in light of that. Um, and, and I hope you guys have seen this. You, your theology, what you believe about God, what you believe about yourself, what you believe about life and suffering and people. Thank you, sir. What you believe about those things is not just about a certificate on the wall that said, I passed Theology 101 in my Sunday school class, or you know, I have Calvin's Institutes on my shelf. You know, theology is not just about understanding and knowledge and, and gaining information. We live out of our theology. Our theology is why we do what we do. It, it explains why we respond to things the way we do. It explains why we minister and say the things we do to people. Uh, our, our, you can think of our, th- our theology is the operating system of our life. And if the operating system is not in order, we don't function in a way that honors God. You follow me on that? That's why we've taken so, so much time um, in, in unpacking and helping you to see more clearly uh, the theological errors and the corrections to those errors in this book, because I hope you've seen the damage that you can do in your relationships if your theology is off. And we see that damage done in Job's life, his three best friends. These were not casual acquaintances. These weren't just some guys off the street. These were his three best friends who probably knew him most of his life. And they pushed him, because of their bad theology, they pushed him to the point where he said, you better stop or I might just abandon all my faith together. So our theology is so much the issue. This book is about theology. And uh, and just by way of review, um, I kind of completed the little mini-series on retributive theology last time. And I, I want to just kind of hit a couple of highlights, just kind of review a couple of those things and make sure how that you understand, that you're connecting the dots between what we've been doing for the last three weeks and what we've been talking about in Job. Because some of you have come up to me and said, well, Keith, that's great, but what does this have to do with Job? And, and that, that's good. That's helpful feedback because that means I'm not connecting the dots quite as well as um, I need to be. So let, let's just think about this. Um, the theology of the friends basically said what? what? What were the friends saying is the problem in Job's life? I'll let you guys talk. What, what's the problem? Okay, he sinned and God punishes him. You can explain everything that happens in Job's life because there's some sin that he's committed and God is punishing him and disciplining him. And what I've labored to show you over the last three weeks is that that, that is a terribly inadequate understanding of suffering and of God himself as we think about the events that happen in life. Um, We said that when you think about suffering, when you think about why God does what he does, you have to have all four pieces of that puzzle. And again, if you missed some of those, I'll just review those for you quickly here. 
A comprehensive understanding of suffering is the first piece, and that basically just helps us to understand not all suffering is the result of personal sin or divine discipline. And that's kind of the category that the friends got stuck in. They, they had a one, they had one tool in their suffering toolbox, and that is you suffer because of personal sin and divine discipline. So we, we understand that that's not the case. There are multiple reasons for suffering in Scripture. The second thing we see is that um, the friends were expecting that God was going to bring judgment in this life, in their, actually in their lifetime. And that's part, part of why Job uh, gets in God's kitchen, uh, kitchen at the end of the book there and says, this isn't right, you're doing something wrong, because Job is expecting all these things in his life uh, to, to be put in order, to, for justice to be done in his lifetime. And in fact, we've seen in the course of Scripture that God does not always bring final justice in our lifetime. Uh, there is a day uh, when God will bring all things uh, together in that way, but it probably will not happen comprehensively in our lifetime. The third thing we saw is that God makes declarations and covenants and decrees, and some suffering that we observe is a direct result of God's decrees and suffering. And the final thing we saw last week is that suffering must be viewed through the lens of God's true character. And and, and I just want to just go one more step with you to kind of flesh this out. Uh, this is so important. I hope you saw last week that uh, it's it's overquoted. I overuse this quote, but I'm going to do it again because I like it. Okay, A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Okay, Have you seen that in this book? Have you seen that illustrated in this book? If we misunderstand who God is, it affects everything in our life, which is why Tozer's right. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. Um, You cannot understand the suffering that happens in your life You cannot understand the suffering that happens in the lives of your friends and family. You cannot understand anything that goes on in God's universe if you don't understand God. You see that? So so let me just demonstrate this, okay? We've seen that God certainly, God certainly is just, is He not? We read it in Deuteronomy, we read it in Exodus. There is no injustice in God. Remember Moses whips out his, his Hebrew thesaurus and he looks up injustice and he writes down all the synonyms. And then in, in Deuteronomy, we saw it last time, he unpacks those things and he throws all those synonyms out and says, God is not unjust. He is not unrighteous. He is right. He is fair. He, is, he always does exactly what is right and never does what is wrong. And we can trust that. God always does what is right. The problem is, and this was the problem with the friends, they stopped there. They saw God as only a judge. They saw him, uh, the term I used last week, they, they saw him as a divine justice machine, not a person, not, not a God, not their Savior, not their Lord. And so when we stop there, we misunderstand what's going on. And we saw last week that God is also patient. And, and let's see how much you guys picked up last week. How did we define patience last week? Do you remember? What does God's patience mean in the context of our discussion here? He withholds, withholds his justice. 
Okay, we might say he delays or withholds that final justice. Why? He has a long nose. See, see, I knew you would remember that. Um, To give us time to repent. And again, praise God. None of us would be here today if God was not slow to anger, if he was not patient. Okay. Um, So in his patience, he's going to delay... Remember what Second Peter says. He's, he's not being slow as, as some count slowness. God's not dragging his feet. He is intentionally patient. He is intentionally delaying his wrath. That's what Romans 2 says. God's kindness and his forbearance and his patience hold back his wrath, not because those things aren't important, but because he's giving people time to repent. And remember, remember what Paul says in Romans 2? It's his kindness. It's his forbearance. It's his patience. When we see that, when God gives us eyes to see and we see, why is he so patient with me? Why is he so kind with me? And what does he say? When, when I get that, what does that draw me to? It draws me to him, but it draws me to do what? The kindness of God draws us to Repentance. Okay, so seeing and understanding and embracing and digesting the patience and kindness of God and delaying His just wrath is what draws us and compels us to repentance. Okay, the second thing we, or third thing we saw is that God is kind. Um, He's what? He's compassionate. He feels for people. He's, He's sympathetic. We, we could, we could jump over to Hebrews where uh, Hebrews 4 says he is a, a sympathetic high priest. And, and remember how the writer to Hebrews unpacks that. Christ was tempted in all things just as we are. Think, think about that for a minute. What were the things you were tempted? You don't even raise your hand, but just think in your head. What were the things you were tempted in this last week? What are your struggles? What, what are those... What are those um, pet sins that you just are daily uh, enemies that you fight. Okay. You got those in your head? You got, you got those things now? Christ experienced the temptation in all of those things. All those, all, all those temptations that are in your mind. He felt the pressure to give in to those temptations. Now, praise God, he's God. He couldn't sin. He didn't sin. But he felt the weight of the temptations. Which means he, he can look down on humanity and, ready for this? By experience, he can relate to you and me. Not, not because he's omniscient and he knows everything and he just says, well, I know everything, so I understand what, what Keith's going through or Terry's going through. No, no. By experience, he feels for us. And his kindness means he's not a justice machine. He's a person. And for those of us that know him in Christ and the the full revelation of the canon, we know him to be a kind and compassionate and understanding Heavenly Father. Not an angry dictator. Not not one of those dads that when you step out of line, it's instant justice. No, It's, it's, it's sympathy. It's compassion. It's kindness in how he deals with his children. The fourth thing we saw is that God is gracious. What does that mean? Okay, forgiving, sure. 
What is grace? We're Grace Bible Church, right? We should know this. What is grace? It's a gift we don't deserve. See, if God was just justice, if, if God equaled justice, no grace. But he's not. He's just. He's patient. He's kind. And he's also gracious. It is his nature. It is intrinsically a part of his being to give undeserving people things they don't deserve. And you've got to have a category for that in your head as you think about what goes on in the world. Because when we see things and we say, people are getting away with things. No, God's being gracious to them, just like he was gracious to us, right? And remember, I hope this was helpful to you. I try to think of God's grace and mercy in two categories. There is his sort of garden variety grace, the everyday common grace that he shows to believers and unbelievers. He, he causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, right? We remember that in the Sermon on the Mount. And he, he gives grace to everybody. And that sort of common grace, that everyday grace, again, it gives us time to repent. It shows us his mercy. It helps us to see his character. Um, and that's that sort of everyday common grace. But for those who continue to reject his grace, that grace will come to an end one day. It will come to an end on the day of judgment, Romans, Romans 2, on the day of the righteous wrath and judgment of God, where, where grace comes to an end in that regard. But here's what's amazing. There's also another category. The other category is what I'm going to call his final or eternal grace. And that is for those who have been made a part of his family, those who have come to Christ in repentance and faith. We have an eternal grace that he eternally showers on us in such a way that we will never, ever, ever be condemned for our sin. It's, it's, it's that, that eternal grace is what offers us the, the robe of Christ's righteousness that we wear as part of his family. And being clothed in that righteousness, being given that eternal grace, we will spend eternity with him enjoying that grace and knowing that God has been just and the justifier in Christ, right? He exercises his justice to us by pouring out my the punishment that I deserve, the wrath that I deserve on his son and then giving me Christ's righteousness so that he can be just and the justifier, as Romans 3 says. And, and, and you know, mercy is like that too. Mercy means... Mercy means God's just not going to give me what I deserve. And again, can we just stop and think about that? If the moment we were born, God was simply a judge and he was not merciful. Instant wrath, instant judgment, instant condemnation, instant hell. But mercy means God's going to temper that. And he's going he's to hold it away for a little bit. He, he's not going to give us the full weight of what we deserve. He, he may even say, I'm going to set that aside for a little while. And again, think of those two categories. There's sort of the, the everyday common mercies where God, God withholds bad things that we rightly deserve every day, doesn't he? Right? Every day he does that in, in probably thousands of ways. And, and he, because he's merciful, he, he holds that, he tempers it, he, he says, not yet. 
And in his patience and kindness, he withholds some of those just things that we deserve, giving us time to repent. And, and you know what? Unbelievers every day enjoy the grace and mercy of God. It's designed to compel them to see the glory of God in Christ. But mercy for unbelievers will come to an end one day. You understand that? There's coming a day when that common mercy, God will say, enough. And his justice will be enacted on the day of judgment. But, but, there's another category. There's another category of, of eternal, of, of divine, or not divine, uh, eternal, um, permanent mercy. Where for those of us who are in Christ, we've, we've repented, we've trusted in Christ, we have been made a part of Christ's body, adopted into God's family, declared righteous, redeemed so that sin is no longer our master. If we're in that category, God says, permanent mercy for eternity. That all that punishment we deserve, all that wrath we deserve, all those consequences of our sin that we deserve, God says, I will never hold those against you. And we enjoy the, the eternal, overflowing, every day, for millennia of eternity, of His mercy and grace. Um, those are the ones we talked about last time. Let me give you just a couple more before we move on. God is love. And I appreciate uh, Terry talked about this recently. I can't remember if it was in a sermon or in one of the sessions. Um, Here's what God's love means. God, in, in who he is, again, this, we're talking the character of God. This, this is getting to the foundation of his being, okay? God, in who he is, the type of God he is, is he sets his affections and his graces and his mercies on people that are intrinsically unworthy of those things. God is the type of God that says, they don't deserve it, they're not worthy, I'm going to give it to them anyway. And he sets his affections on beings that do not deserve his love. Um, Piper has said it most recently, and, and, and I, remember, I, remember, I remember seeing this in college, um, just one of those one of those moments with the Lord, um, I, I called them my Shabbats, my, my, my time with God when I would get away and, and um, spend time with Him. And, and, and seeing, seeing this for the first time, and I, I don't think I've ever gotten over this, God doesn't love me because I'm lovable. And I've just missed it the whole time. Well, I don't think I'm very lovable, but God loves me, so I should love me too. No, that's the therapeutic gospel. That's the psychological gospel. That's heresy. It's a false gospel. And I remember seeing it so clearly. God, God's love, God loves me even though I'm unworthy, even though I'm undeserving, because that's the type of God He is. He, in His nature, He loves what is by nature unlovable and undeserving and, and un, unlovely in that way. And see, you, you got you got to put that into the formula if you're going to understand life and suffering and people. And there's one last little thing here, um, and I and I just want to 
if I, if I can, can I just make this into a little umbrella? Remember, I'm a pastor. I failed art, so just go with me, okay? God is also infinitely wise. And what, what God's wisdom means is, write that down and then look up for a second because you, you got to get this, okay? Just write wise. Got it there? Okay. What God's wisdom means is all of those attributes, all of those attributes, he knows how to bring into perfect harmony and carry out his perfect plan for what is absolutely best for you and me. Wisdom is the divine um, regulator of his attributes that governs how he cares and ministers and deals with his people in a way that always brings him maximum glory and is always the best thing for his people. Romans 8, 28 and 29. Okay, do you see that? What's that? Yes, and obviously his, his power is what allows him to do those things. Absolutely. Okay. So, so, okay, so, 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 let's, let's come down from that for a minute and think about Job. Can you see that, that his friends and even Job himself had a completely inadequate view of God? They did not understand him. And, and that's again why I'm telling you, this book is about the character of God. It's about saying, no, that's not the way he is. Let me show you how he is, really. Let me show you that he is not just just, although he is, he is patient, he is kind, he is wise, he's gracious, he's merciful. And in God's infinite wisdom and love, he, he, he plays that out in a way that cares for his people perfectly. Um, do you see? Do you see it? You, you getting it? And, and as I said last time, um, I, I didn't draw it like this, but when we think about God's justice and His righteousness and His, um, His wrath over sin and His punishment and His holiness, and then we think about His mercy and His love and His grace and His patience, kindness and and see you and i look at that and 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 we try to do this in practice but we don't do a very good job we look at that and we say well we we know god's both but we find ourselves kind of gravitating toward one and the other the the fact is those, those are totally incompatible right those are totally incompatible lists unless unless what unless you have a cross connecting them if you have a cross connecting them, they fit together. They are compatible. No cross, no compatibility. But if you have a cross, it pulls them all together. Okay? And that's why I said last time, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ, is an intrinsic part of the character of God. You cannot understand who God is. You cannot fit all of these attributes together. You cannot understand the, the, the amazing character of who God is in, in all of its wonder without the cross connecting those things together. 
The cross was not an afterthought. The gospel was not plan B. It has always been at the heart of who God is. Okay? Is that good? Okay. Now, look at Job 37. Let's connect this to Job now and and watch how this works. Job has raised some questions, hasn't it? Has Job raised some questions? Well, let's just think of a few of these. How about this one? Why do believers worship? That was theme number one. Remember? Way back in in Genesis. (laughs) In Job 1 and 2. That was the question that, that Satan came, accusing God of being a worship buyer, a worship merchant. And we learned uh, there that that's not why God is worthy of our worship, and that's not what God is about at all. But that was a great question that Job raised, right? Here's another question that the book of Job raised. Why do people suffer? That relates to theme number two. The answer of the friends was, well, because they sin and God judges them. Job has raised a third question. Is God unjust in allowing the innocent to suffer? That deals with theme number three. Theme one hangs on the character of Satan. Theme two hangs on the character of the three friends, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. And theme three hangs on the character of Job himself. Okay, you with me on the three themes? This is a review, right? Okay, Job has raised questions. You remember at the very, very beginning, way back in January, February, I said, okay, you guys are reading Job, right? You're still reading Job? I'm still reading Job. Are you still reading Job? As you read Job, what did I ask you to do? Make note of the questions. Okay. And that just kind of struck me at the time. It's just, there's all these really good questions. Remember we said suffering causes us to ask questions that we ordinarily would not ask, right? The, the inquisitional use of suffering. Suffering causes us to ask questions that we ordinarily would not ask. I, I'm going to do this this week, but I, I have no idea how many questions the book of Job raises, but there are lots of good questions there. David. Did you count them? Yeah, I was going to do that too, and, and then I, I, I thought I would, uh, I thought I would count all the interrogative particles there. You can kind of cheat in Hebrew there and do that, but then you know you may have one clause that introduces that, and then you have three more questions because that fell through. So I'll do my research and I'll put it against yours, and hopefully we'll come up with a good answer. Yeah, it is a bunch. Okay, now. That's right. Now, I had, I had no idea when I said that, I had no idea when I said that how important that would be um, in understanding the book. It was just an observation. Um, but as I've studied this and as we're coming to this sort of concluding section of Job, I think the questions that are raised and what God does with them are the whole point of the book. Okay. And you'll just have to take my word for it until we get another week or two into this. But think of some other questions. Remember, remember Job 3? Why is light given to him who suffers? If life is going to be this bad, why didn't I die in birth? Right? What's a, you guys remember some questions? You guys have been studying this too. What are some other questions that stick in your mind that the book of Job raised? Do you remember? I'm putting you on the spot. This is the part where you talk. Other questions. Do you remember any? You can look if maybe you've been marking them or whatever. Will your riches keep you from distress? Okay. 
Will your riches keep you from distress? Very good. That was in, I think, round three or around that time, right? Um, do you remember, and I can't remember, it was one of the friends, how can a man be in the right before God? Remember that? Great question. And, and it just, the, the book of Job, in, in God's amazing, the, the way he inspires the text, this is, this is a Holy Spirit thing, he just throws the question out there. And you're like, whoa, that's a great question. Daryl, another question. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. Um, and I think ultimately the answer is we don't know. Um, we, we knew that early on in, in chapter 1, the narrator tells us that um, Joe, because he was a righteous man, he interceded for his kids and, and he was involved in leading them spiritually. And so I suppose we can infer from that that there was a walk with the Lord, but I, I, we certainly couldn't be dogmatic on that. Um, don't know. Yeah, good question. Okay, so, so all these great questions. Okay, Maybe this week you can go back over and just as you read through, kind of mark your favorites there. And, and here... This is the part, this is great. The book, the book, in the chapter we're going to look at here, the book comes to a climax as God appears in order to address the questions raised. And that's why I think this, this is really something we're supposed to see. The, the book raises all these questions, good questions, big questions, um, eternally significant questions. The book raises all these questions and there's just questions lying all over. You, you, you flip through Job, there's just questions lying all over the pages, falling out of your Bible. There's questions everywhere, right? And have we seen that both Job and the friends are completely inadequate to answer those questions? You, by, the time, by the time you get to God stepping into the scene, you're like, well, these guys don't know anything. They don't agree on anything. They don't make any sense. And that's why we said we need divine assistance to understand and to answer these very, very important, very challenging questions. So, so the climax of the book is God's going to say, okay, time to answer your questions. And, and I, I, I cannot... Preachers never overstate things, right? Terry, we never do that, right? We never say this is the most important thing you'll ever hear in your whole life. And I... So I, don't, I, I really don't want to be, I, I really don't want to exaggerate, but at least at this point in my understanding, Job, I think that's the issue. Seeing all these questions, all these issues, and, and remember, all of those questions are raised in the context of huge, tremendous, chronic suffering. Okay? So this isn't just like a bunch of philosophers throwing out some questions going, hmm, I wonder about this. No, this is, this is real life. This is hard life and questions being raised. And, and all that is coming to a head as God steps in and says, it's my turn to talk now. The friends have had their turn. Elihu has had their, has had his turn. Now it's God's turn. And I think, I think the, the, the point of what we're supposed to see as this book comes to a close is how's God going to answer these questions? How's he going to do it? So pay attention to that as we move along in the weeks ahead. Okay? Let's set the stage here. Shall we set, shall we set the stage? What's going on? Let, let's sum up the book here. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have concluded that Job's suffering is the result of his own hidden sin. We've seen that, right? Job has insisted on his own innocence and has accused God of injustice for the suffering he has brought. 
Job has demanded that God be put on trial so that he can be tried and shown to be guilty of injustice. The trial will, in, in a secondary way, also serve to proclaim Job's innocence as well, both to God and to his friends. And finally, Elihu has rebuked Job for his accusations against God, though he agrees with the friends regarding the cause of Job's suffering. So he gets it half right. And I would suggest he gets the most important part right. Because messing around with the character of God is a serious offense. Okay, so let's, let's pick it up. I, I, I want to... I want to bring you to the ash heap outside this man's city. Okay, I want to bring you there. Okay, Let, let's let's get there in our minds. Uh, Job thirty-seven. Okay, so Elihu is speaking. You remember you got the friends there. They're out of gas. They don't have anything more to say. Job, he's out of gas. He doesn't have anything more to say. They don't agree. This friend, this younger friend, steps in. Elihu. He says, chapter thirty-seven, verse one. At this also my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Listen closely to the voice, to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes out from his mouth. Remember what's going on. As, as Elihu is speaking, what's going on in the atmosphere? There's a storm brewing. In fact, this is a great day. Look out there. See clouds. We, we got a 30% chance of rain. Better tonight. But there's this storm. You ever looked out your window and you see this big thunderhead just, you know, when it raises up like that and then it comes out and all of a sudden this thing builds and you start to see lightning and hear thunder in the distance. That's what's going on here. They're outside. They're in the ash heap. They're having this discussion. Elihu starts seeing this weather and he, remember we talked about a few weeks ago, he takes weather and makes it a metaphor and, and he uses it instructively. Listen to just a reminder of those verses. Verse 3, under the whole heaven, he lets it loose and his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it, a voice roars, t- talking about God's speaking, God's voice. He says it's like the thunder, it's like the lightning. He thunders his majestic voice. He does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders with his voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. I just started Ezekiel in in my Bible reading plan. You remember those really weird chapters, the beginning of Ezekiel? Do you remember him describing the voice of, we got the, the, the living creatures, remember there? And then above them is, is the throne of God. And do you remember him describing the voice of the Almighty? It's like roaring waters. It's like a raging sea. Remember that? That's what he's saying here. The, the, the wonder, the greatness, the splendor of God's speech. Verse 5, God thunders with his voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. For the, to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. And to the downpour and the rain, he says, be strong and and seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. Then the beast goes into its lair and remains in its den. Out of the south comes the storm, and out of the north the cold. From the breath of God ice is made, and the expanse of the waters is frozen. All with moisture he loads the thick cloud. He disperses the cloud of his lightning and then it changes directions. You can see him. You can see him with the backdrop as he's teaching the friends and he's teaching Job the, the storm brewing and the lightning going back and forth and changing positions and the sound coming from different directions. He says, that's what God is like. 
Verse 12, it changes directions, turning around by his guidance that it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth, whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, he causes it, he causes the weather to happen. And then he says, he turns to Job and he says, listen to this, O Job, stand and consider the wonders of God. Job is thinking about God's power, God's wisdom as demonstrated in the metaphor of weather. Does that get to you, Job? Stand and consider the wonders of God. Do you know how God establishes them? Do you know how he does that? We have Doppler radar today and we don't know how he does that. Do you know how God establishes them and makes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know about the layers of thick clouds, the wonders of one perfect in knowledge? whose garments are hot when the land is still because of the south wind. Can you, Job, with him spread out the skies, strong as a molten mirror? Do you see see Elihu beginning to say, Job, are you out of your mind? You're not God. You're not like him. You're not powerful as he is. You're not as wise as he is. And you say with the skies spread out the say with him spread out the sky as strong as a molten mirror. Teach us what we shall say to him. Now he's kind of kind of mocking Job there. Teach us, Job, what we shall say to him, to God. We cannot arrange our case because of darkness. Shall it be told him that I would speak? Or should a man say that he would be swallowed up? And now men do not see the light which is bright in the skies, but the wind has passed and cleared. What he's saying is people see all that in creation that's supposed to testify and hold them accountable to who God is, and they don't get it. They don't see the light, which is bright in the skies. They don't see the light of his general revelation in creation. But the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. Around God is awesome majesty, the Almighty. We can't find him. Just wait, Elihu, hang on. All the Almighty, we cannot find him because he is exalted in power. He will not do violence to justice. There it is, his declaration of God's righteousness and justice. He will never do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. Therefore, men fear him, and he does not regard any who are wise at heart. He, he sets the tablecloth. He puts the silverware down very appropriately in each spot. He puts the, the salt and pepper and the glasses and the napkins. He's setting the table for Job because God's coming. And in the midst of this wonderful declaration of who God is, that Job is not like God, that we don't even understand him, there's this... Uh, wonderful stage that God himself has provided of weather, of lightning and wind and rain and all this stuff that's designed to illustrate the character that Elihu is unfolding. And then the wind kicks up. A very, very strong wind. In the midst of the lightning and the thunderstorm, it may have even been a tornado. And, and I, I can't beg the pulpit on this, but the way I picture this happening is Elihu is cut short because of this approaching tornado, this, this, this storm that all of a sudden he's, he's been using to illustrate, and now it's like, uh-oh, this is getting dangerous. 
And as that whirlwind, that storm approaches, something amazing happens. Look at chapter 38, verse 1. Then Yahweh, the personal covenant God, answers Job out of this approaching storm. Do you see that? God's going to speak. He speaks, no doubt. His voice sounds like the raging of waters. It sounds like the thunder cracking in the distance. I have every, every confidence that these, these guys are scared to death at this point of this approaching storm. Now God's going to speak. By the way, do you guys understand God has the final word? When God speaks, everyone else sits down. Everybody else shuts up and is quiet. What does he say? And this is interesting. He's, what is he doing? He's showing up to answer all the questions that the characters have given, right? That, that's what we've seen. There's all these questions laying all over the place. God's going to show up and he's going to begin to answer the questions. What's the first thing he says? Look at the text. Verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? What did he do? He answers all those questions with a question. Okay. Now, we'll talk about this next time. That is so, 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 so insightful. God is not obligated to answer all of our questions. And often, as we'll see here, part of the reason I think God doesn't just start answering their questions is because the questions have been asked in an irreverent and unfaithful and ungodly and in an accusatory way, and God will not stoop that low. God says, we need to do a little bit of rearranging here first. And he answers all 264 or whatever of the questions with a question. Actually, as we're going to see, a series of questions. Look at what he says. I mentioned to David a minute ago, the the way, one of the ways at least, in Hebrew that you, you form a question. Like if we want to form a question, what do we do? We have a question mark, right? We have that. Okay, it's inflection. And 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 in the in the verb and what we're asking, there, there's some there's some something missing in, in how we're asking it, right? We're, we're saying something, expecting an answer. In Hebrew, the way you do it is you start a sentence with what's called an interrogative particle. They have a special little um, it's two letter word that you stick on the beginning of a sentence, and that and that says, "This is a question." And that's what he starts with here. And you can see God saying, who is this? Notice he doesn't even address him personally. He addresses him like he's not in the room. He doesn't say, who are you? 
He, he uses, um, uh, it's a relative pronoun. Uh, uh, who is this? You know, almost like, what on earth is this thing? Who would question me? And notice what he says here. Who is this? It's impersonal. It's impersonal, I think, to really, really drive home the rebuke that is meant there. That darkens counsel. Okay? That word counsel can be used in a lot of different ways. One of the most common ways it's used, ready, is for God's plans. So I think what he's saying is, who is this he doesn't even say person. Who is this thing? Who, what is this who darkens, who clouds, who perverts my plans, my character, who I am with words lacking knowledge? And you hear the strength of God's rebuke here. <laughs> and if that's not enough... Now, now, pull the car over for a second. I forgot to say this. Where's Job? He's in the ash heap. What's he doing in the ash heap? Suffering. Chronically. More than probably any of us will ever know. And do you see how God's talking to him? Does he say, well, Job, I know you've been hurting for a lot of, a lot of weeks now. And, um, you know, I know you said some things you probably didn't mean, you know, and you're hurting. He goes for the jugular. Now, God is patient, right? He is kind. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is loving. He doesn't set those aside as he responds to Job. He, he is doing, he is doing one of the most, probably the most loving thing that has ever happened in this man's life. Because what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Okay? Don't see this as a lack of compassion. See this as the wisdom of God bringing to bear the exact, appropriate words according to the need of the moment. And what Job needs, what all people who accuse God of wrongdoing, what we need is to be rebuked. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, admonish the unruly. Now notice what he says here. So, so don't forget the context. This, this man is in a hospital bed in our culture, okay? He, he's up at the hospital. He's been suffering chronically. And yet God says, even though that's true, and, and he's no doubt, he's, he's definitely being compassionate, but he says, this is wrong. Look at, look at verse 3. Now, gird up your loins like a man. Huh. Those are fighting words, aren't they? Gird up your loins like a man. Be a man, Job. And then he says this, and I will ask you. See the word ask? It's a legal term. I am going to cross-examine you. Why? Because Job said, I want to take you to court. I'm going to bring witnesses and evidence, and we're going to have a trial, and I'm going to show you, God, that you're wrong. And God says, okay. Put your big boy pants on. Get into the courtroom. I'm going to cross-examine you. Why? He's the judge. He's the judge. I'm going to cross-examine you. 
And when I'm done with you, then you instruct me. Okay? Deal? And what we're going to see over the course of the next three chapters is God cross-examining Job. And then he'll let Job talk at the end of that, and he can tell God what he wants to tell him. Well, we'll find out what his cross-examination entails next time. Okay? Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. No, that's good, and I, and I think that allows us, like you said, to be empathetic of the guys, but it also calls us to realize the privilege that we have and what's been entrusted to us, that we have the full canon of God. And thus, I think we are more accountable to what we're learning here. Okay. All right, more news next time. More news at 10. Let's pray.